I don't know if you know this, but this is kind of a big deal Sunday. Six years ago, six years ago. Think about how much the world has changed in six years. And six years ago, we opened the Bible and the Gospel of Luke for the first time. In the years intervening, we've covered other entire books of the Bible. We've looked at the Psalms and the Prophets. We've been all over the Bible and occasionally weaving in and out of the Gospel of Luke. And today, after six years of occasional reading and study, not occasional but continuous, just with a lot of pauses, we come to the end. I was gone last Sunday because I was on a marriage retreat with my wife for once we were on the other side of the podium and we got to experience something I will recommend to you called a weekend to remember. If your marriage needs a tune-up or a blessing, I would recommend that event. I'm studying even now how to bring some of the things that we learned from that weekend into the life of our church. More on that later, but last week, Pastor Rob opened the Bible in Luke chapter 24 and showed you the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a ditch on either side of the road when we sit and think about the resurrection of Jesus. For some, for many people in the world, the mere fact that some a actual human being is raised from the dead, because that is supernatural, they immediately discount it. They put that in superhero movie status. Cool story, didn't happen, couldn't happen. Of course that didn't happen. And they immediately discard out of hand without even considering the possibilities and the evidence that it could not possibly have ever happened. That may be at least some of you. It would be unusual for someone who has absolutely no room for the supernatural in their lives to be in church, but if you are, welcome. We're thrilled that you're here. There are people sitting among us who once were committed militant atheists who came to understand that God is quite real. So some of you may skew toward that ditch. But probably since the vast majority of people who have come here are already following Jesus, you may lean toward the other ditch, which is to read again the resurrection story and be so familiar with it that it doesn't awe you anymore. That you just take it for granted that Jesus rose from the dead. You miss the details and the texture of these historical events written down by people who were eyewitnesses or who knew eyewitnesses and sit with them for a moment. That's what I'm going to invite you to do. To sit with them for a moment and marvel at the resurrection of Jesus. Last week, Pastor Rob covered most of chapter 24, and he showed you that the first witnesses to the risen Jesus, Jesus actually back from the dead, scars still on his body, but quite alive, perfectly alive, were women. And he explained to you quite correctly that if you were going to make up a story in the first century, you would not write a story that involved women as the witnesses of the resurrection because of the very low social standing that women had in that ancient culture. If you're making a story up, this is exactly the wrong way to do it. Then he began to show you that this, Jesus met two disciples on the road to a, to a village named Emmaus, and Basically, he was playful with them. He asked them, what's going on? There seems to be a lot of discussion. And they say, well, where have you been? You've been under a rock? Haven't you heard? 
And they explained to him their broken hopes that they had put all their stake, all their hope on Jesus, and they thought that maybe he was more than he turned out to be. I'm in verse 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, that's quite a pivot from somebody who doesn't seem to know what's happening to telling them you're slow to believe and slow to understand and opening up the Hebrew Bible to them and explaining that it all had to do with the Messiah. Then, Pastor Rob explained to you, they went on and they had a meal together and while he ate with them, something extraordinary happened. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed them and broke it and gave it to him. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, even though it was late, and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with him gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And here's another little detail you may not have ever noticed in the resurrection story. These two say, Simon, Peter, saw Jesus. And you can't find the account of Jesus' encounter with Peter in any of the Gospels. His restoration comes later. But Simon for himself seeing Peter, uh, Simon himself seeing Jesus, that's not in the account. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus appeared both to the apostles and specifically he names Peter as one of the apostles who singularly saw Jesus. But that story is not even told. Why are all these overlapping accounts? Why are the details different in one account than the other? How do they all fit together but actually frankly with some difficulty? Why are some very important things mentioned as facts but not explained, not narrated, because it happened. And that's how real testimony takes place. If you've ever been a part of a big event like an accident, or you've ever been involved in some legal proceeding where people have to remember and say what they saw, if it's real, it doesn't all come together into one beautiful package. If it's real, it has rough edges, and you have to reconcile stories, and some people remember some things, but other people had their head turned and didn't see that at all, even though it obviously happened. You're being told a real story, and Luke is writing this carefully for people who did not know Jesus for themselves to teach us about Jesus' resurrection. The first thing Luke wants you to know about the resurrection of Jesus is this. It is absolutely physically real, just as ours will be. Read with me in Luke chapter 24. The Lord has indeed, I'm in verse 34, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. As they were talking about these things, see if you can stand here in the first century dust and see this and feel this. 
As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. How would you react? You see the humor here? They're having meetings about who saw what and how can this be true. And oh my goodness, the women were right. We laughed the girls out of the room, come to find out they were exactly right. That's embarrassing. I should go find Mary and apologize. And then Jesus suddenly is standing among them while they discuss him. How would you react if you saw him die? If you saw his brokenhearted mother? If you met Peter after the denial and saw him weeping bitterly and you saw this strong commercial fisherman rocked to the core because he has denied Jesus shortly before they killed him, how would you react? You'd be shocked. You'd be stunned as they were. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, of course. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Hey, Jesus is very much alive. Has he ever said that to you? Has he ever used his word or his people to give you an impression in your heart and mind that you don't need to be afraid and you don't need to be troubled? He's very much alive. He's dealing with them and showing them that his resurrection is absolutely physically real just as ours is going to be. Verse 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Why did he show them his hands and his feet, do you think? What's that about? It's a very specific detail. It really is me. Touch me. Put your hands on me. Put your hand on my shoulder. But specifically, if you want to be sure, look at my hands and feet. Why his hands and feet? Because they were scarred from the crucifixion. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but in the new heaven and the new earth, when God makes everything new according to the promise of Jesus, as explained in the book of Revelation, the only thing that will be scarred and imperfect in the new heaven and the new earth is the body of the Lord himself. The only trace and memory of sin is the scarred body of Jesus because that's what it costs to forgive your sins and mine, the death of the Son of God. Here's a little theological point for you. Many Christians, because we have somehow come to believe a Gnostic idea, a philosophical idea that is opposed to Christianity, that the body is somehow fallen and broken and corrupted and bad, We somehow have come to believe, many of us, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he eventually took his body off. That's not true. At a specific time in history, which we celebrate at Christmas, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who was always with the Father and who is always God himself, assumed a human nature and was born of a woman, born under the law, born among us as an ordinary, real human being, and he retains that glorified, resurrected body to this very moment. The body of Jesus was not a garment he took, put on, and took back off. It remains to this day. That's why he's showing them his hands and his feet. When you are resurrected, you likewise will have, as I'm about to show you, a glorified body like his 
because you're a human being and you were made to live in an embodied state. And the body itself, just like everything else in all of God's creation, it's both glorious and fallen. What has wrecked it is sin, but sin is going to be removed by the work of Jesus and everything that God made will be redeemed, restored, and made perfect, including these physical bodies, which I don't know if you've noticed. They let us down and they wear out. Have you noticed? Any of you have a little routine in the morning like I'm beginning to develop just to get things moving in the morning? I used to laugh at people my age and how long it took to get things going. Now I'm getting out of the bed in the morning and stretching before I go for the coffee. Things go a lot better if I stretch out before I drink the coffee. What's that about? That wasn't necessary 10 years ago. It's necessary now. Because all of God's creation is both glorious and fallen, but now the Son of God bears the wounds that sinful men put on His body, which He has not removed because His resurrection was absolutely physically real, and so will ours be. When He said this, He showed them His hands and His feet, and while they were still, and while they still disbelieved for joy and marveled, what a phrase, they disbelieved for joy. In other words, they're overjoyed about the reality that they're seeing, but at the same time, they can't quite believe it. They're so happy about it, they don't believe it. Have you ever been there? Three times, I think, in my life, I have failed to believe and understand a thing for joy. The first was when I saw my wife dressed as a bride getting ready to come down the center aisle of the church where we were married. It was quite real. It was right in front of me, but I was so happy about it, I had a hard time believing it. I had a little bit of an out-of-body experience, like this is happening to somebody else. I'm in a movie. I'm in a rom-com. <laughs> the two subsequent times is when... Someone carefully placed my infant sons in my arms for the first time. And I looked down and I saw a physical answer to a prayer request. That's disbelieving for joy. That's what's happening to the disciples, but on a much bigger scale, while they still disbelieve for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Why is he doing this? Give them time to process. Give them time to calm down. Teach them that ghosts don't eat broiled fish. <laughs> he's joining them for dinner because he's quite real. They're quite real. A real human being who is somehow eternally the Son of God and always has been is going to have dinner with them. The resurrection of Jesus is absolutely physically real, and so will ours be. Listen to Jesus' promise in John 14, verse 19. Jesus said this shortly before going to the cross. Read this with me, please. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live you also will live. That promise was made in history to men who physically saw him again. But the last sentence is not only for them, it's for us. Because I live, you also will live. The Apostle Paul explains it in theological detail, and I need to explain to you his argument here. If you've never read 1 Corinthians 15, go home and read it this afternoon. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is explaining that everything that was ruined by the sin of Adam, the first man, is going to be reversed 
by the life of the second Adam, the last Adam, the perfect Adam, a symbol he uses to describe the words of Jesus. Paul explains the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. That's Adam. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Your body is wearing out, your body aches, your body grows weary because you are made from the ordinary elements of this world. It has been ruined by sin. You fell under the curse of the first Adam, but then, Adam said, but then, Paul writes, read verse 49, this is a great promise to you. He's including every believer in Jesus Christ. Read 49 with me. It says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's your future. Now, that's kind of deep. First Adam, second Adam, that's a little professorial. That's a little university for me. Let me call the Apostle John to the witness stand. John's simple. He's not unintelligent. He's actually profound, but he's a commercial fisherman. The language he wrote the New Testament in is so simple that it's the first thing they give you to read and understand in seminary. It's like your very intelligent grandpa sitting you down when you're seven years old, knowing that you're not quite as bright as he would like you to be. And that you're very, very young and very, very scared and very forgetful and explaining things to you in language you can understand. This is Jesus, this is Paul, this is the Apostle John, the one who was near Jesus when the night he was betrayed, who was the first to know that Judas was the traitor. Here's John explaining it to you in simple language. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. In other words, God loves you. John says, I love you too. You are beloved to me and you are beloved to God. And right now, you are God's child. That's what Jesus did for you. He brought you into the family of God. That's already happened. But there's more that hasn't happened yet. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, what's it say? We shall be like Him because... We shall see him as he is. He's real. He's alive. He's incarnate. You're going to see him. And when you see him at his return, you'll be like him because you'll see Jesus as he is. That's the first thing Luke wants you to know from Jesus himself regarding his resurrection. Here's the second. This resurrection of Jesus is not an accident. In fact, it was promised across all of Scripture. We already heard that one explanation where Jesus politely says, you fools, you've been in synagogue, you've been hearing the Scriptures read and explained to you your whole lives, why are you so slow to believe them? He's going to do that again with this new crowd, which include His apostles. Verse 44, Then He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Can you hear in verse 44 the tone of, re of repetition that Jesus is trying to convey to them? This is what I've been telling you guys. 
This is what I've been teaching you for years. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written, notice that, not imagined, not talked about in quiet places, not made up in meetings, no. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This phrase, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, is a very Jewish way of referring to the entire Old Testament. The first 39 books of your Bible, roughly two-thirds of your Bible, was written long before the appearance of Jesus Christ, and he says, I'm all the way through there. Not every word is about me, but all of Scripture is about me. Every section of the Old Testament spoke about me, and it had to be fulfilled. This is amazing. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. That's the sermon you wanted to hear, not this one. I'm doing what I can with, with what God gave me, but what you really want to hear, and you will someday, because he's quite alive, and he's going to fill up the house that he went ahead to build for us. You want to hear Jesus understand, uh, uh, open up the Scriptures to you. And if we could step back out of this story into the present day, has he done that for you? You understand, if, if you believe in Jesus and have an actual, real, personal relationship with Jesus who is quite alive, that only happened because Jesus opened up this book to you. It takes a little bit of intellect to understand the Bible. Even if you don't, have to, even if you don't know how to read, you at least have to have the intellectual ability to understand what the Bible says. But it takes much more than that. There's all kinds of intelligent people who have the intellect to read the Bible who have not had their mind opened by Jesus to understand it. But maybe you remember the day it all snapped into focus for you. Maybe you remember the day that you went from not interested, bored, laughing about people who would gather to hear about a supernatural God who sent a son that was all laughable to you. And maybe now you can look back at the circumstances that God orchestrated in your life and more than that, the moment when the light came on for you and things that you previously dismissed or simply had no interest in knowing at all, your mind was open and you understood the Scriptures. That was Jesus opening His Word, the Word that speaks of Him to you. Verse 46, He said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The life and the resurrection of Jesus, first of all, is actually physically quite real, and secondly, it was promised all across the Bible, including in what may be the oldest book in the entire book, in the, the oldest book in the entire Scripture, Job chapter 19. Job's name is synonymous with suffering. In a day, Job lost everything he had, all his wealth, his beloved children, and listen, in the middle of that suffering, listen to Job's expression of faith. Job said, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed yet, what's it say? In my flesh I shall see God, 
whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, my heart faints within me. That last line says, my heart is broken, my life is ruined, my body is shattered, but here's my hope. When this is done killing me, I will yet stand and I will yet see my God and my Redeemer. That resurrection hope, that resurrection truth is buried in the entire Bible. It's not an afterthought. It's not a Christian addition to the story. It is the point and the culmination of the story as God, who made everything, takes everything that sin has ruined and redeems and restores it all so that truly in Christ everything will be made new. And finally, Jesus tells us what we have to do now is tell everyone, tell the nations. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Those are the historical facts. The Psalms up to a thousand years before the birth of Jesus spoke in detail of his life. Psalm 22 is a detailed description of the crucifixion of Jesus, which incidentally had not yet been invented. Isaiah speaks of both his virgin birth, the circumstances of his death, the kind of people that died around him, and the nature of his burial in Isaiah chapter 53. It's all through the Bible. All of that is in verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and it's not mere history, it's a truth that has to be told and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Starting here, you are to tell everyone. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up His hands, He blessed them. A final miracle. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Are you ready for that? They weren't. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Maybe you took a religious studies class sometimes. Maybe you had a high school philosophy or sociology teacher as I did I told you that it was all made up and that there's no evidence of the first people who knew Jesus in person calling him, hailing him and worshiping him as God here it is right here Luke is telling you that the final thing that has to be done in the story of Jesus is that everyone has to hear it Verse 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name, in the name of Jesus, not in some generic form of the name of God, not in some self-improvement gospel or everybody makes a little course correction and everybody gets better. No, repentance for the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed specifically in the name of Jesus to all nations. You start here, you go everywhere. The gospel is for everyone. Repentance, not a popular word, a very churchy word, a biblical word as you just saw, but it has a very simple meaning. 
What Jesus is saying is that his prophesied life, which was then actualized in history about 2,000 years ago, is so profound and changes everything so much that everybody needs to hear about it. And that the great need of the nations is to repent, which literally means to turn around and come back to him and receive from him what only he, the Son of God, can do, give them forgiveness of sins. You want an easy picture of repentance? Imagine a shipwrecked man holding on to debris from the wreckage, which is slowly becoming waterlogged, and as the waves get bigger around him and it becomes heavier and heavier, the debris becomes heavier and heavier beneath him, it starts to fail him, and he is going under for the last time, and he hears a voice behind him saying, let go of that and hold on to me. The lifeguard has come. The lifeguard can save him. What the man must do now is leave behind, turn away from what he's been holding on to, and entrust himself to the one who can save him. If you've ever done that with Jesus, you're a Christian. If you've never done that, regardless of your Christian habits and thoughts, you're not a Christian. What makes the difference is those who hear the name of Jesus recognize and own their sin, turn away from whatever they were doing to save themselves and entrust himself to them. That's the story. That's the good news. That's what we have to tell the nations. Jesus gives them this commission. It's very picturesque. He lifts up his hands. He speaks a blessing over them. And as he gives them the great commission, he goes, I don't know if you noticed, it's pretty amazing, he was carried up into heaven. Of course, where else? Where would the Son of God go back to? But from the place he came. And I don't know if you knew this, this is the end of Luke's gospel, but Luke kept writing. It's an easy thing to miss because there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and this one, Luke. Then there's a fourth Gospel. You know the name? John. And because there's a fourth Gospel that comes between the book of John and the book of Acts, sometimes people miss the fact that as soon as Luke finished his Gospel, he picked up his pen again and wrote the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, he's going to give you a detailed description of this moment of the ascension and the disciples are going to hear for themselves their marching orders. They're in the Bible for us. The book of Acts gives you the first initial Holy Spirit-driven work of the apostles to extend the name of Jesus to every nation. Because they knew He was quite alive, this time they did not falter and they did not fear. They all pursued preaching Jesus until they were jailed and most of them were eventually killed. Jesus told them to wait for the promise of His power, and here's Luke telling you about it. Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. These are words of Jesus. Read it with me, please. Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when He has said these things... As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, 
who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will use his quite real body once more on this earth to return to it. And I love the details in the story because they're real, they're historical. Did you notice the position of the apostles with all as convinced as they were of the reality of Jesus? Do you see that they still have the capacity for amazement here? When Jesus went back to heaven, this was roughly their position. More messengers had to come down from heaven saying, Boys, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? He's coming back. But for now, you have your orders. Listen, the reason this church exists is to fulfill this great commission, beginning from this corner. When Pastor Rob tells you that more than two dozen people saved in Sunday services, that's why we're here. That's why we disciple. That's why we sing. That's why these lights are on. That's why this mic works. That's why the groups happen. That's why we do biblical counseling. That's why we baptize people. Every bit of this church has to be, must be, and is intended to be an effort to obey Jesus. When Pastor Rob talks about our Christmas missions offering, the intention is to send to the missionaries in the very hardest places extra support so that they can keep going. To support other evangelistic ministries that are beyond the walls of our church so that they can take the story of Jesus where we can't take it ourselves. To extend through humanitarian relief in visible form an expression of the love of God accompanied by a witness of why the humanitarian is as kind as and sacrificially as he is in that moment. That's why we're here. Because the resurrection of Jesus is quite real. Everything written in the Scriptures regarding the first appearing of Jesus has already been fulfilled. And now we have to tell the story to the whole world. That's why we're here. That's why we're disciples. I'd like you to consider seriously your place in obeying what Jesus has told us to do as we close our service in prayer. Will you pray with me, please?